Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, we are in chapter 10 as we continue to work our way through this book written to primarily Jewish Christians, those who came from the Jewish tradition, they trusted in Christ, and now the writer is addressing them, and he's focusing on the fact that Jesus is supreme, that he's greater than, and he has been drilling down that Jesus is the one time for all time sacrifice. You don't have to go to the temple every day. You don't have to go to the day of atonement once a year, but Jesus is the one time for all time sacrifice. And it's because of Jesus, we learned last time, that we are sanctified. That word means set apart. We are set apart for God. So we come to the time in our life where we realize we can't get to God on our own. We hear God's promises that Jesus came and died for us on the cross. And so we trust in Jesus alone as the only way we can have a relationship with God. We trust in Jesus as the one who died for our sins. We go tell God, I trust in your son. You promised that if I trust in him, I have this eternal life. And he looks at us and says, not guilty. You are justified. The, the sins that you carried here, Jesus took upon himself, not guilty. And he also says, sanctified. You are set apart. I got great things for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good things, the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. By the way, he always knew you were going to trust in him, didn't he? And from the beginning of time, he's been working in your life. From the beginning of your life, he's been working in it because he has great things for you to do. Not only are we sanctified, the writer told us last time, but we're perfected. That does not mean we're perfect. It means that the work of Jesus is perfect. It's complete. It's fully accomplished. And the writer also says you're forgiven. Aren't you glad of that? That we can stand before God cleansed because of what God what Christ has done for us. Now, in the, the rest of this chapter, in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, the writer's going to do two things. First, in verses 19 through 25, the writer is going to uh, put forth a three-part challenge. It's a serious challenge, three-part challenge. Then, in verses 26 through 31, the writer is going to issue a, a very solemn warning. There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. This is number four, and this is probably the most solemn and the most severe. So we're going to get to that in a second. But what I want to do is to start at the end of the chapter, because in verse 32, the writer tells us who the recipients are. He tells us what they've been going through, and we get this window into this this church he's writing to in verse 32. Look at uh, that verse. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you trusted in Christ. You endured hard struggle with sufferings. What's he talking about? You guys went through some tough persecution. And then he explains and details that persecution in verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Think of that. They took you. They put you before a lot of people. And the officials exposed you to public affliction and reproach. Anyone here ever gone through that? And sometimes being partners with those who were so treated, so you weren't up there, but you were right there with them. 
For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You had compassion for those in prison. You, you risk going to prison by going to see those in prison. And you joyfully accepted. This is a, this is a crazy verse to read, isn't it? I, I don't know if I could joyfully accept this, but these readers did. They joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Think about that. Some of these people had t- all their possessions taken away. So the writer here is not addressing privileged, pampered Christians whose biggest issue is a first world problem of their garage door not working well that day. These recipients of the book were not spiritual lightweights. They were people who had gone through the spiritual ringer. They understood persecution. And as bad as it was, the writer says, it's going to get bad again. Look at verse 36. Therefore, you've done it, but you've got to do it again. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and, not, and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, but then verse 39, it's like a coach, right? A coach getting the team fired up before they go on the field. But we are not those who what? We are not those who shrink back. We are not those who will be destroyed. We've been sanctified. We have been justified. We have been perfected. We have been forgiven. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are those who have faith. We are those who live by faith. We are those who keep on going and preserve our souls. Man, that's, just think about that. Think about who he's writing to. Now, I would say, man, after all you guys have been through and after all you're going through, let's just get together and have a group hug, right? Let's just, let's just, let's just talk about this thing and encourage each other and just keep going. But the writer knows that yesterday's faith doesn't work for today. Yesterday's win, you can celebrate that, but you've got to play the game today. He knows that there is a need for fresh faith. He knows there is a demand that these believers are consistently challenged because they've got to get ready. For, have they been through tough times? Yeah, they've got to get ready for some tough times. Yes. And so he gives them a three-part challenge. Look at chapter 10, uh, verse 19. Therefore, when we read the word therefore, what do you have to do? You always got to go back, right? What you're going to read is based on what you have read. And so you have been sanctified. You have been perfected. You have been forgiven. That's who you are. You have a standing before Jesus Christ, before God himself that cannot change. That's your position. Therefore, Brothers, that's generic, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, since we have full assurance, since we are those who have boldness, we can speak freely to the God of the universe. We have intimacy and acceptance with God. How do we have that acceptance? By 
the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we have confidence to go before the throne of grace and ask for anything we need, knowing that God will give us what we need. The writer explains the blood of Christ. I love the way he explains it. By a new and living way. That word new is only used here in the book of Hebrews. It means freshly slain. Freshly slain. And so you have a word here that means freshly slain and right with it, living. Here is a sacrifice that has been slain, but he's living. Here you have the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, he's the one who brings us to the very presence of God. And he is over the house of God. That's just another uh, word for the church. Since all those things exist, since that's who we are and what we have in Jesus, here's the three-part challenge. Here's the first one. Uh, Look at verse 22. Therefore... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. A writer back in chapter 4 verse 16 said, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So part of drawing near is prayer, but there's so much more to drawing near. And if you'll let me, we're going to talk about that next time. In Hebrews chapter 10 or 11, next time, we'll see what it means to draw near. So if you'll just hold that for next time, let's keep moving. The first challenge is to draw near. Here's the second part of the challenge. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast to our confession. The word hold fast there means to grip, to grasp, to not let go. The word confession is simply what we believe. By the way, Christians, what is it that you believe? Do you know what you believe? That's what you're to hold fast for. Every believer, if you're a believer here today, you need to know what salvation means. You need to know what community means. You need to know what the whole, how the Holy Spirit works in our life. You need to know the work of Jesus. You need to know what spiritual identity is, the basics of the Christian faith. We need to know those. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have your PhD in theology. But every believer needs to grasp and hold on to our confession. And that's why we are so adamant here about going through living grounded or something like that in your life. You've got to know what you believe. The subtitle of living grounded is embracing the foundational truths of the Christian faith. And then after you embrace those Uh, truths, you need to share them with someone else. If you've gone through Living Grounded, you need to take someone else through it. 2 Timothy 2.2. We can offer Living Grounded one-on-one. We can offer one-on-few. We can offer it uh, uh, in a class. We can offer it couples with couples. We can offer it in a small group. We will do it any way you want to do it, but you need to know what you believe. We live in a time when you need to know what you believe. Would you agree with me on that? Parents, you can't teach your kids what you don't know. You cannot impart what you don't possess. You can't leave what you don't have. And if you're sitting there as a parent, in the honesty of your heart, 
you're saying, I really don't have a grasp on the confession, the essentials of the Christian faith. Then how in the world are your children going to get it? Not by Christian school, by the way. Not by the hour they spend with us here on a week. Or two, maybe. Sunday and Wednesday. They're going to get it from you. In a world where truth is up for grabs, your kids are living in a world where marriage is under attack, where gender is no longer based on biology, where an unbiblical agenda is being not just promoted, but pushed down their throats. And parents, we got to stand up and, we, and grandparents, and we got to be those who know what we believe so we can teach it to our children. By the time our kids reach their 20s, they will have spent 20,000 hours on the internet and 10,000 hours playing video games. And you know what? Adults, we're not, much, we're not far behind them. When it comes to watching television, when it comes to computer screen, when it comes to the iPad screen, when it comes to our smartphone, we are not far behind them. And we need to get a serious grasp on the real truths because our kids are being fed garbage. And we got to stop it, but you just don't stop it, you replace it with the truth. We have to be those who teach our kids the truth of God's Word. Because they are having sewer flowing into their minds. Don't you think that's going to impact them? Five million U.S. Uh, this is a quote from a book, uh, Pop Cultured, by a guy named Steve Turner. If you're a parent, you need to read this book, Pop Cultured. Listen to what he says. Five million U.S. gamers. By the way, that would include fantasy football players. No, there are a lot of you. Fantasy football gamers. Five million U.S. gamers play for more than 40 hours a week. It's questionable whether anyone could play that much and, and also practice the pure religion in James chapter 1, verse 27, which involves visiting orphans and widows in their distress and keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. I don't think we would need to engage in so many fantasy battles on screen if we were aware of the real battles that God asks us to get involved in. We have to know what we believe. And we have to grasp and hold fast our confession. Here's the third part of that challenge. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that's the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, as you see the day approaching. From the early church until today, there have been those who just decide that going to church isn't all that important, that meeting with other believers isn't all that important. I can do it on my own. I can attend church irregularly. I can live solo, or I can just hop around from church to church, not ever getting involved, not ever having fellowship, not ever having accountability, and I can just use the smorgasbord approach to Christianity and church. That's just unbiblical. 
for many, meeting together is not a priority because we've got too many things going on in our life, right? But here, we are told, by the way, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is Christ's idea. And here we're told that we are to spur one another on. We are to prod each other on to love and good works. We're to be encouraging one another. The word encourage here has a broad uh, uh, meaning, a broad range of meaning. It means to comfort. It means to cheer up. It means to confront. It means to urge on. It means a gentle push in the right direction. We need to be those who are doing that to each other. There's no program for this. This is what the church does. If you know of someone who isn't in church today and you haven't seen them for a while, you need to call them and say, I love you. I missed you. And they say, we weren't there for the last three weeks. We were sick. Our kids were sick. We're praying for you. Do you need anything? You know what? We were really busy. Well, you know what? You need to get back. It's dangerous to be away. No, I don't want to do that. You're a believer. That's what the word says. We prod each other on. We encourage each other. You see someone dabbling in sin, it is our responsibility to say, look, I'm not here to judge you. I just know that didn't look right. Are you okay? Can I help you? That's what we do. We comfort. We confront. We're a body together. That's what we should be doing. So we do capital campaigns, you know, and and we used to bring in groups. We don't do that anymore. We used to bring in groups to help us out, and they would always say, here's what you do. You get the database of everyone, and you call, and you invite them to these events, right? And so we'd get the database, and, and we'd start calling through it. And, man, I hated that because here's what always happened. Someone would say, hey, thanks for calling when you want some money. I haven't been at the church for two years. Man. That was just an indictment on us. We don't take attendance. We do take attendance for children and youth for safety reasons. And so I've been pushing for years. Let's use that, right? Let's use that. Let's use that. If a person doesn't bring their kid for a couple of weeks, they're probably not here either. So let's send a card and say, hey, we missed you. Can, can we help you? What's going on? And, and that got out, and I had people say, oh, I can't believe it. You're checking up on us now, huh? <laughs> Big brother. Oh, man, look at the Bible chapel. Guys, that's the church. That's what we do. We are to encourage each other. We prod each other on. Now, when you call someone, they may say, you know, I'm sick. Can we help you? They may say, I don't like the Bible chapel. Ron is a, I can't stand the guy. Well, you can stand in, that line wraps around the block. So, you know, I don't worry about that. <laughs> but then you tell them, that's fine. We don't have a corner on the market. Go, f- but, but are you in a good church? Are you in a good church teaching God's word? Fantastic. You're still my friend. You're still my brother or sister in Christ. I'm still praying for you. That's great. But I love you too much to think that you're out there on your own by yourself because that's just a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Let us encourage each other.
So a while back, I got this letter from a president of a missionary organization. I'm going to read a, just a little part of the letter. Here's what he wrote. Jesus wasn't so interested in getting people into churches, I think, as he was in changing people's lives, giving them hope and a reason for living. C.T. Studd, a great missionary, expressed it this way, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Well, with all due respect to this president, the church is Jesus' idea. So I think he wants people in church, right? Now, he transforms life, and if you're going to church just to check a box, that's a problem. But the community of believers is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He does want people in the body, encouraging each other, prodding each other on, stirring each other up to love and good works. And in all due respect to that great missionary, C.T. Studd, the church is the rescue shop within a yard of hell. There are, you don't have to be next to a house of prostitution or a, a sex trafficking ring or a homeless shelter to be a yard from hell. People across the street are dying and going to hell. And hell's going to be full of homeless people and rich people. And if we think we only minister to those who are poor and our scripture's full of that, and we do, just look at the ministries we have here. But if that's the thing, you say, oh, Bible chapel, see, we're in this area. Where... When Jesus called Zacchaeus down from the tree, he was only calling the richest man in town down from the tree. He dealt with the rich and the poor because he realized the rich and the poor had eternal souls and we, and we have the message that changes lives. We have to be those who realize that we are within a yard of hell and we have to be those who live our lives in such a way grasping our confession and encouraging one another and uniting one another and prodding each other on and ministering to one another that the church becomes the most attractive thing in town if we would do it right if we would do it the way God calls us to do it. Okay, that's just my thing. Let's go on to the warning, all right? Right after this challenge, the writer puts forth a serious warning. There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. This is number four. And uh, it's, it's, it's probably the most solemn and severe. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll work. We'll work through it, okay? Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 26. For if we, now remember, he's talking to people who have lived through persecution. He's challenging them to continue to do things right. And now he says, if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What in the world does that mean? but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse, how much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has 
trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of truth. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a difficult passage. There are some who hold that this passage is talking about losing your salvation. The one thing you do when you're looking at Scripture and there's a difficult passage, you always interpret a difficult passage by the clear passages. And we know there are many passages that tell us when we're a child of God, we will always be. John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I hold you in my hand. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. The Father and I are one. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can snatch you out of the hand of Christ. Romans chapter 10, nothing, Romans chapter 8 rather, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So this is not about losing your salvation. Other people say, well, you know what, this is for the pretenders. This is for the posers. This is for the people in church, but they're really not believers. And certainly, there are people in church who are not believers. Get that. But I believe this is speaking to believers, pure and simple. I believe it for these reasons. One, chapter 10, verse 26 says, if we go on sinning, the writer is putting himself in the group, and he's a believer. If we go on sinning, chapter 10, verse 29, I think this is critical, who has profaned the blood of the covenant, right, by which he was sanctified, by which he was sanctified. The writer has used the word sanctified to talk about coming to Christ and being made holy by God. This would be very unusual for him to use that word now in a different way to non-believers. And I believe it for another reason. Verse 30, for we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge what? His people. So I believe this verse is speaking to believers, this passage. And so let's go through it. If we, believers, go on sinning deliberately, not a one-off, not a, I shouldn't have done that, premeditated sin. Here we're talking about, the in the Old Testament, they were called high-handed sins, talking about adultery talking about murder, talking about money crimes like fraud and theft, talking about addictions, pornography, talking about uh, using theological error to promote oneself or or a minister, minister, the charlatans of, of the New Testament, talking about materialism, talking about unforgiveness, talking about those sins where we say, I am not going to forgive. I'm going to spend my money the way I want to spend my money. Uh, It's the sin of Abel, right? Sin is crouching at your door. You can master it or it's going to take you over. And we say, let it come on. High-handed sins. And the writer says, if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
what, what's he saying? He's saying that Jesus is the only sacrifice for sin. You are turning your back on the one you've trusted in to forgive your sins, and you've got to come back to him. He's the only one. You cannot engage him and protest him at the same time. Let me try to explain it this way. I thought about this illustration when I was running this morning, and uh, it worked in the first service, so I'm going to give it another shot. All right? Anyone here um, familiar with the NFL flag thing going on? <laughs> think about what's happening. Just think about it at a high level. Don't let your emotions get involved in this thing, but just think about it at a high level. So we have people on one side uh, protesting um, social injustice. Social injustice is a real thing, right? Education hadn't fixed it. The government hadn't fixed it. Maybe the church should get involved in it, don't you think? But that's a whole other sermon, right? But they're, it's real, and they're protesting social justice. Whether or not they should bow, bef- uh, put their knee before a flag or not, I, I don't think they should, but whether or not they should, that's free speech. That's the beauty of our country. We, get, we, we do away with free speech. We're not in here anymore, right? So you have this happening on one side, free speech, Now, on the other end, we could go Friday, the president opened his mouth, right? And you never know what's going to happen when he does that. (laughs) And he said some things he shouldn't say, right? Words he shouldn't use. You don't call people that. So he shouldn't have done it, but what allowed him to do it is what? Free speech. He used a platform for free speech. Person kneeling using a platform for free speech. What gets me is the people in the middle. So if you went to an a NFL player, they, what do you think about people kneeling? They say, you know what? There's free speech. But last week, they united their arms in protest against who? The president and his what? Free speech. You cannot embrace free speech and protest free speech at the same time. You can't stand there with your hand on the person kneeling and say, I embrace your free speech, but my arms are locked in protest to the president's free speech. Right? You cannot embrace and protest the same thing. That's what's going on here in Hebrews. Believers. We are saying, man, I love Jesus. I'm going to embrace him. The grace he's given me, the love he's shown me. He's got a home for me in heaven. I love Jesus, but by gosh, I'll do what I want to do in my life. My money's my money. Don't you tell me, Jesus, how to use it. I love Jesus, man. I embrace him. I just love his grace. I love his goodness. Don't you tell me to grasp the confession of faith. I'll I'll study whatever I want to study. I love Jesus. Man, I embrace him, but I'm not going to read his word. So here in Hebrews, if we go on sinning to learn, you you cannot, you cannot. It is hypocrisy. And by the way, what we're talking about here in Hebrews is much more important than NFL. 
talking about eternity. We're talking about sin. We're talking about consequences. You cannot embrace Christ on one hand and protest him on the other hand without there being serious consequences. I'm a believer, love Jesus, but I'm involved in adultery. I'm a believer, I love Jesus, but I'm in porn. I'm a believer, I I love Jesus, but I got bitterness in my heart and don't tell me to forgive anyone. I'm a believer, I I love Jesus, but I'll do whatever I dang well want to do. That's what's going on here. And the writer says there are serious consequences here. When you do that, look what's happening. You are, verse 29, you are trampling underfoot the Son of God. You are profaning the blood of the covenant by which you are sanctified. You are outraging the spirit of grace. I think that's another reason this is talking to believers. The spirit lives within you. You're outraging the spirit who lives within you. You're ignoring his conviction. You're ignoring his guidance. You're ignoring his counsel. Doing what you want to do. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the mighty God. This verse is talking about consequences to ongoing, deliberate, high-handed sin. Embracing and protesting at the same time. Hypocrisy. Now, God's gracious, and he forgives us. But there are also consequences even to forgiven sin, and we need to be just as adamant about obedience before we sin as we are about grace after we sin. So you're a guy or a woman and you're going to commit adultery. Can God uh, forgive you? Absolutely. And it's going to blow up your family. You're a Christian businessman and you're committing fraud. Can God forgive you? Absolutely. And you're going to go to jail. If you're a Christian single, And you say, I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go to the places where you find a mate and you marry someone who's not a believer. Will God forgive you? Absolutely. Are you going to live with the consequences? Yes. And so people come to me and they've been married and they say, you know what? My marriage is a mess. What do I do? Tell me what to do. Tell me, help me fix it. Everyone wants it fixed, right? Help me fix it. I married this unbeliever, and I want to say, what in the world don't you know? There are consequences to sin. I don't say that. I'm nicer than that. But that's what I want to say. You, you screwed up. You deliberately sinned. And now you want us to fix it. There's no fix for this. These are called consequences to sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he will also, what? I love 1 Timothy 5, 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, but they always catch up. If you don't think God is serious about sin, read the Bible. How about Moses, the greatest prophet who ever lived? There was never a man like Moses in the Old Testament, the end of Deuteronomy says. And yet, because of his sin, he didn't get to lead the children of God into the promised land. 
consequence to sin. Um, in Deuteronomy, it says that Moses kept asking God, God, please change your mind, please change your mind. And finally, God says, don't ask me again. Didn't get to do it. He got to go and look at the promised land on the mountain, but he didn't get to lead them in. David, you think, wait, wait, you think Moses is in heaven? I'm pretty sure. There are consequences to sin. David, a man after God's own heart. Man, you read uh, uh, 2 Samuel and things are cranking with David, man. He's the king. The country is united. Gets to, gets to verse uh, chapter 11, right? 2 Samuel chapter 11. And then what happens? David's alone by himself. That's a dangerous, that's back to community. That's a dangerous thing. He's alone by himself. Sees Bathsheba. You know the rest of the story. And then from there, uh, 2 Samuel 12 just starts going down. His son dies. Absalom rebels. His other son, Absalom, rebels, runs him out of the kingdom. Absalom has intimacy with all his concubines on top of the palace. David, what you did in secret, I'm going to do an open. Absalom is killed. And David just lives with these consequences. David in heaven? I'm certain. There are consequences to sin? Yes. What a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. One more illustration. 2 Samuel 24. David uh, takes a census of the people. Now, it's not wrong to take a census. But in this time that he takes a census, it was a matter of pride. David just, he just wanted to say, what a great ruler I am. Look at all the people in my kingdom. And, it, and, and, his, and people said, David, we shouldn't do this. But he didn't listen. In chapter uh, uh, 24, verse 10, right after he did it, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away my iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And he went to bed. Did God forgive him? Yeah. But the next day, God sent the prophet Gad to David and said, David, your sin's forgiven, but there are consequences to even forgiven sin. You got three choices. Think about this one. One, three years of famine in Israel. Or being pursued by the enemy for three months. Or three days of pestilence in the land. How would you like that? Was David forgiven? Yeah. Were there consequences for his sin? Some tough ones here. 2 Samuel 24, 15, 16, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but, not, but, but let me not fall into the hand of men. Even if I, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God, but I'd rather be there in that gracious hand than the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning, so he, he chose the pestilence. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, 70,000 men. Think God hates sin? Think there are consequences to sin? Even forgiven sin. It is a fearful thing. Fall into the hands of an almighty God. We're going to hand the service uh, back over to uh, those of you in Ross Traver and, and in DeBerry as you, uh, as you close the service. 
here in the South Hills, uh, Kirk's going to come and lead us in a song. And uh, here's what I would ask you to do. As Kirk leads us in this song, I'd ask you to just do some business with God. Ask him to search your heart. Some of you, you know, I mean, you don't need your heart searched. You know you're living in blatant sin, sinning deliberately. Some of you may well be in an affair or right before it. You've got to stop. Some of you are addicted to pornography. You've got to get the help you need and stop. Some of you uh, have a seed of bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. It is eating you alive. Some of you have an issue with materialism. And you grasp the fact that God gave you everything, but you keep most of it for yourself. You cannot embrace God and protest Him at the same time. You cannot embrace God and thank Him for everything He's done for you and then protest it by not forgiving or not giving or being in church whenever you want to be here or not being involved in the lives of other people. See, you cannot embrace and protest. So let God do his work in your life today, as he has done and will do and is doing in mine. Because the warning today is just, it's, it's solemn, it's severe. If you continue to go on sinning deliberately, there are consequences. You are trampling underfoot the Son of God. Who, what Christian would ever want to do that? You, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. What Christian would want to do that? And so let this be between you and God, just this time, as Kirk sang for us. God, Lord, do your work in our heart. It's not just about time to go. It's about time that we open our hearts for you to do your work. Speak to us clearly. Speak to us clearly, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.